Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the VeloCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VeloCast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. Queen stage of the Pyrenees today and it was the stage that the peloton themselves were openly saying would be the hardest of the entire tour. For some it would prove to be the end of the road, others it would raise more questions as to what their strategy is for the entire event, but for Tom de Milan it became an historic battle against firstly his breakaway companions, then the Arcalis climb and finally the biblical weather conditions that developed close to the summit. Biblical weather, my arse. <laughs> Do you know, I put that in, of course, just for a bit of hyperbole, but also to see whether you would react or not. And I'm so glad you did. That's a normal summer ride in Scotland, mate. <laughs> that, that, that was a mere bagatelle. You wouldn't even stop for a hot chocolate at the Ledburn Inn on the way home from a commute from Edinburgh because of that. <laughs> you would just shift it down a sprocket, speed up a wee bit to keep warm, and, you know, might not even change before going to the pub once you go home. In the riders' defence, especially Tom de Milan, who um, won the stage, of course, I have to say that when you're coming out of 40 degree heat and then hitting that all of a sudden, it might feel a little different than when you're throwing your leg over a top tube and it's only 9 or 10 degrees to begin with. To be fair, I mean, of course I'm being facetious. It was horrible conditions for the riders at the finish. But I think it was brought home when, uh, you know, you will be listening to us ever to Ashley in a wee while, and I'm sorry I mentioned him so early, Dave. But, you know, Ashley, before we started recording, said, said, I was standing thinking, am I more likely to die with my umbrella up or down? Which I think... Like it's a measure of the conditions. <laughs> and a measure of his commitment to the show, which should be uh, celebrated. Uh, so, actually a really enjoyable stage. I know some people were, were expressing a bit of, of doubt as to, to how exciting it was actually going to be as, as things approached the final claim of the day. And, and, and even myself, uh, I, I was saying that you wouldn't be short of opportunities to nip out for a pee. No, I mean, what we saw today, I, I expected to get some answers today, and we did actually get some GC answers. It may have seemed a relatively conservative day on, on the GC, but, you know, that, that tells us something anyway. So we've got quite a lot to discuss as far as the, you know, the implications for the GC moving forward towards the middle and then the end of the tour. But we had a fantastic breakaway, which had some action for the King of the Mountains jersey. And then we had Tom Dumoulin, who, you know, confirmed himself whether he's a contender for the overall GC as he was in the Vuelta last year, confirmed himself as a strong, strong stage rider in any Grand Tour that he enters. You know, he's now got a stage under his belt in all three. And a rider who's hugely popular with journalists, with fans, and, you know, even with humble podcasters like you and I. So, you know, we had the, we had the overarching narrative that Velon loved to talk about with the GC, but we actually had a cracking race in the break. So I, I was a wee bit disappointed we didn't get more GC action but I don't think as cycling fans we can be too disappointed with today at all. No, and I, th- I think the the breakaway made up for uh, the the lack of, of GC action that was kind of going on on behind because they were fighting tooth and nail. I mean, a, a, a break initially of about twenty riders and um, with some cracking names, as 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 you say, uh, I, I found Thomas de Ghent and Thibaut Pino. 
I nearly said Jerome there, Thibaut Pinot fighting for, for mountain tops, um, whittled all down to just Tom de Milan and uh, Rui Costa, Rafa Maika behind when de, Ma- de Milan broke clear. So it was a cracking battle to, to watch. We've been in Petter Sagan up there. Yeah, Petter Sagan was an absolute joy today. I mean, doing a, a bit of work for, for Rafa Maika. But my favourite bit, actually, the, the sprints between Thibaut Pino and Thomas de Gent was the one where Thomas de Gent, I think, started the sprint for the mountains point about 400 metres out. I mean, just a ridiculous distance away from the line. And Thibaut Pino, it was like the tortoise in the hare. You know, because Thibaut Pino would pull in front and then, you know, Thomas de Gent would just mow him down again with that relentless pace. And then Pino would nip ahead in front. And, you know, they clearly wanted it. There was a lot of suffering going on with a really significant part of the stage left to go. Uh, so, I mean, we saw some absolute commitment from the riders out there today. And we saw from Tom de Milan a perfectly timed attack, which saw him work to his own strengths perfectly. You know, the, the Arculus, as we were told all day, um, and, you know, as people have discussed since we discovered it was going to be in the, uh, in the event, is a climb that really suits a strong time trialist. You know, because it's relatively steady and you're just looking at measuring your effort perfectly. And Tom, Tom de Milan did that. But we also saw a, a great attack and ride from Raphael Micah from Tinkoff wearing the you know the jersey. So we had some big action from one of the pre- premier jerseys there. And we also had a bit of uh, you know, man on man ultimate cage fighting action from George Bennett of Team Law and NL Yumbo. <laughs> so I mean it had everything. He was clearly impressed by by Chris Froome's elbow stroke punch to, to the annoying fan yesterday and maybe thought, well oh, this is maybe a, a a new UCI regulation that's been brought in. Oh, there's a fan. I'll go get him. <laughs> Modes this poor guy. In. Well, I say poor guy. The Muppet had stepped out in the road to, to take a, a selfie or had a selfie stick. Um, and as far as we know, said fan is still lying halfway up that mountainside. Somebody should go and check that he's, he's actually okay. No, I think I think George's got a career as a kind of second, first, or, well, maybe second or third draft uh, you know, defensive block in the NFL now because that guy was going nowhere once he was knocked down. <laughs> could it almost was very see the, impressive. You <laughs> could almost see the, the Warner Brothers cartoons uh, birds circling his head. <laughs> I tell you, one of our listeners, I'm not sure who it was, said that you should get a T-shirt designed. Uh, and you and I have been pondering T-shirt designs for a while, but that, the left turn Clyde one, we need to get done. Okay, well, I did I did um, submit a, a T-shirt to Twitter today that just said, I blame Oleg, which seemed very, <laughs> very popular. Um, so... The breakaway, there was there was action all over the place. They, they had enough distance that even though I considered that uh, if the GC guys had gone absolutely nuts at the bottom, and this was before Tom Dumoulin attacked properly, uh, and the the breakaway kept attacking each other, then even with eight minutes, which is what they had at the time, 801, 802, uh, they might have got snapped up. But I think we saw not a conservative GC race, but a very measured GC race. Um, Team Sky were doing the Team Sky thing, uh, sitting at the front, setting the pace, although not such a hellish pace as it first appeared, I think. Uh, But from particularly Movie Star, I think we saw a watching brief. I think they have a long-term plan for this race, um, and it didn't involve getting the yellow jersey today. Because for me, um, if we look at Nairo Quintana in particular, 
never looked in the slightest difficulty all day. I've seen a quote from Chris Froome who says, you know, I'd like to think that Nairo was at his limit. Well, you carry on with that, Chris, because Nairo, to me, looked like he could have followed your wheel for another 40 kilometres without even really starting to look like he was mildly perturbed. Um, so I think we're looking at a movie star game where they're, they're aiming to take the, the race very late in the way that we've seen Astana do recently problem is it's a very dangerous game because I think today there were real opportunities to make a difference and they were missed in the in the name of saving yourself for you know bunny ears the plan well I think that's a very very good point because if you react to events as they're presented to you and take the opportunities that you think are there you have to say that today was an opportunity Chris Froome goes on a demob happy hold my bead on attack down down a mountain slope and freely admits he he may have paid for it today mm-hmm. and i didn't think he looked quite as as fresh as as perhaps he he should have done mm-hmm. at, at this point in the race and as you rightly point out, Nairo Quintana looked completely impassive and would have been happy to to continue riding for another four hours. Although with Nairo Quintana, you never really can tell. He could have been suffering like a dog. His face is, is completely implacable. Um, and I have to ask then, given that uh, Movistar's plan is essentially the same plan that they had last year, which is wait, 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 and ultimately it failed because they waited too long, Are they going to suffer again from that? Because what I'm seeing is a Chris Froome, he says he's prepped specifically for the third week because he realised he faded towards the end Mm -hmm. of the tour last year. And also playing into that is the fact that the first week of this tour is a whole lot easier and and less demanding on the GC than it was in 2015, where Froome managed to take the the definitive amount of time that he needed for, for the whole race. Well, if you just need to look at um, you know th- this first week, it has been um, a thrilling week's racing. You know we've had moments where, you know particularly the finales have been excellent. But the fact that we've had so few or zero abandons, in fact, until you know well into the race, shows that it's not you know it's not been as hard as previous tours have been. Now that that stands Chris Froome in good stead as he moves into the third week. You add to that the fact that he said he specifically prepped, as you say, for the third week. So whilst Nairo Quintana, looking at last year's performance, might think if I hadn't lost, you know, X amount of time on that that hellish day over, you know, the barrage where the weather and the wind came into play and he lost pretty much the amount of time he lost the tour by, then I could have taken more time. Uh and yeah, would have won the tour last year. So I'm starting from a better place now. I'm only a handful of seconds back, you know, and Chris got some time in that amazing descent yesterday. But I'm still in a situation where I'm confident I can put him to the sword in the third week. The problem is that opportunities don't arrive to order. And I think we saw an opportunity go begging today. And the other thing is that if he'd been in a situation where he was within you know, closer reach of Chris Froome last year, we don't even know if the stages would have played out the same way. You know, because this is like a a kind of Ian Livingston, decide your answer, turn to page 843, (laughs) you know, role play book. (laughs) Is, you know, your decisions each day can make a difference to how the race plays out. So I I genuinely think, having watched movie star in Nairo Quintana today, they're looking at that very hard last few days and they are aiming to A, not have the responsibility of the jersey until then, but B, they are confident they can get back the time. And if they do, then I'll hold my hands up and say, you know, you were right, 
absolutely good tactics. You've had the minimum stress in the team. You've come home with a yellow jersey. All I'm saying now is it's a very risky thing to pass up opportunities when they present themselves in the Tour de France. Yeah, especially if that is the plan, which we can only assume it is, given um, that events thus far have have supported this as as a hypothesis. You're not comparing apples with apples. Last year was last year. It's Mm. not as if you're riding the exact same parkour again and therefore you know where your mistakes were last year and how to correct them in 2016. It's not the same race. It might be called the same, but we're not riding the same stages, guys. So I'm with you. I think it's a very, very dangerous game to play. But we're will say it's not necessarily the wrong one. We'll only know that when, when we come to Paris. So two other people who, who tried to, to animate the race today, we saw uh, Richie Port uh, go on the attack. Uh, we saw uh, Dan Martin go on the attack uh, as well. And we also saw Bauka Mollema go on the attack. Yeah, I mean, if he's with uh, Trek Segafredo next year, he's just trying to establish whether he'll be Alberto's domestique or Alberto will be his, I think. Um, slight joking, but of course, Bukamolova is very strong. Really nice, actually, to see a Trek jersey up the front at the, the sharp end of a race at this point um, and, and confirms that that was the right move for him. You know, he's in a team where he feels comfortable. And Trek, actually, have, have been you know, pretty good, pretty good this tour. I've been quite impressed with him. TJ van Garden lost, what, 38 seconds to the GC contenders? Um, that that will actually answer some of the questions about who leads the uh, the BMC team, but it's not a definitive answer. The surprise for me, except it's not really a surprise because we've been saying it since day one of this, is that we saw Fabio Aru um, lose, what, a minute to Freeman Quintana, despite having... You know, the, the conundrum that is Vincenzo Nibali at his side to, to marshal him home. So we didn't get an answer at the very sharp end of the GC competition, but we saw, you know, a few folk fall by the wayside a bit. Mm. And someone who seems to be growing in stature day by day is uh, Orica Bike Exchanges, uh, Adam Yates. Think how fast he'd have gone if he, if he hadn't had to have those unaerodynamic stitches in his chin. <laughs> what a ride! I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, what a ride yeah. today from him! I mean, amazingly, to, what a talent! You know, they moved to to Orica, um, Green Edge at the time, bike exchange now, because him and his brother wanted to to ride together, and they didn't want to be devoured by you know the the production line uh, that is Team Sky when it comes to you know having cannon fodder for the leader that they're quite happy to burn out, and. It's clearly worked out for him. You know, he's he's putting himself in a situation where we're deep into the race, and he's still a, a serious contender. You know, at a podium position now, the only thing I think that will stand really against him, unless he has a jour sans, is is the time trialing. But it's not normal time trialing, so even that won't be quite as big a hit as he would normally take. I'm super impressed with him, and for him to be up there after you know the full weekend in the Pyrenees speaks volumes to the young man's talent. I mean, an awesome ride from Yates. Uh, one rider that you didn't cover that I I threw up there t- for you to to talk about was Dan Martin. I'm not sure what to make of Dan. Um, well, we have a question which should, from one of our listeners, good friend Owen Phillipson, asked me specifically. No, to... my friend. Why? What's wrong with Owen? I went up to Stirling for breakfast this morning and he didn't tell me that Corrieri's cafe was shut. I had to oh, go I to Bridge of Allen was... for my breakfast. I didn't know Owen was officially responsible for providing the, the populace with opening and closing times for all the, the town's restaurants. To be fair, I didn't even ask him, but he should have known I was coming up. 
and just told me anyway. So, so he should have known you were coming up and he should have known that the restaurant in question wasn't open today. Yeah, I'm God, you're not asking much you, are you? It's, it's a great Italian cafe in Stirling and they're keen supporters of cycling. So if you're ever in Stirling, go to Corrieri's Cafe. And I've, I've, I haven't had so much as a free bacon roll off them for that. But no, <laughs> no, but not, not so much as a sniff of an apology to Owen for your <laughs> trouble. Anyway, Owen's question was, did Dan Martin achieve what he was trying to? Who did he gap on GC and by how much? I think he didn't actually achieve nearly as much as he would have hoped in terms of getting a gap. Um, but we saw so much attacking from him and, and so powerful attacking. You know, he, he genuinely put... Um, he didn't put people into severe difficulty, but he made them work quite hard to get them back. I think what we saw today was a Dan Martin who grew in stature and grew in confidence. You know, for one of the first times this year, I looked at him in an Etix jersey, and we've talked about how it doesn't look right. It didn't look bad today, did it? You know, so Dan stepped up. He's attacking the best on the terrain that really suits them, and he's become part of that select group that's capable of competing at the front on the big stages and the Grand Tours. So I don't think he made as much time as he wanted. I don't think he put distance into people as much as he wanted, but I think he took a huge step forward in his confidence in Grand Tours. So I'd, I'd give him an A minus. You know, a really strong performance in terms of how he feels about himself in that kind of company, even if he didn't make the kind of difference that I think maybe he hoped he would. Well, I'd, other than the comment regarding him suiting the ethics jersey, I still don't think he looks right in an ethics jersey. But what I did see today was a, a, a Dan Martin who was prepared to go on the attack, wasn't scared to go on the attack, and never for a second looked like he was struggling just to, to hang on, which is yeah. probably a criticism of, of Dan in, in previous tours. And there were he a couple of wee to... bits, actually, where I, I thought he might get dropped after an attack where the mm. others kept the pace up. But, you know, he stuck in the back for a wee minute. And then, you know, so would me if he was in the back up the front having another wee attack. You know, so it was great to watch. Yeah, I, I saw today, especially, the transformation from, from a guy who looked supremely confident every time he goes to Liège, Baston Liège, to that same confidence manifesting itself within a three-week Grand Tour. Now, that's a big, big step up. There's not many guys can do it. So, uh, brilliant to see from Dan Martin's point of view. I mean, in terms of what it achieved, other than confidence, not very much, just to kind of come back to, to Owen's question... He actually lost a place on GC, but that's just the shuffling of, of the cards and mm -hmm. I don't think we can read too much into it. So what will be more interesting for Dan Martin, I think, is how he then uh, takes this confidence and how he's feeling in his, his self to the Alps in, in a week or so because by that time we're two weeks into to a three-week race and that's where people start just getting tireder and tireder and weaker and weaker. And that's the difference, as you've often said, John, between the really good cyclists and the great cyclists who have got what it takes to last over that attritional 21 stages. Recovery. It's all about recovery. You know, Greg LeMond, the, part, the main reason that he, he started to falter was, um, you know, the, the aftermath of that turkey shoot where it wasn't his top end that went, because, I mean, he's often said that he can produce virtually the same amount of power after a relatively short period of training now as he could at his peak, although he's a 
considerably different shape. Although I can sympathise with that. Um, it's the fact that, you know, with the lead in his body and stuff, he wasn't able to do that recovery over the three weeks. And that's the test for Dan now. You know, we've seen that he can perform at the highest level in shorter stage races. We've seen him look confident in the kind of company, you know, the, the rarefied atmosphere he was in today. It's whether he can develop that over the three weeks. But I think he's definitely taken a step up in this Tour de France as far as I'm concerned. Just a quick mention of, of Roman Bardet, who continued to impress for, for me today. Um, and he said after the the stage had finished, le balan est positif, which means the, the balance sheet is in in the positive. And I think he's right to say that. He's still only 44 seconds down and is is looking good. And mixing it with the big boys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've seen Thibaut Pino fall by the wayside, but even he is animating the race. You know, he's he's not just going, oh, you know, Sacre Bleu, I'm knackered and, and disappeared off the back, as, as, you know, my perfect colloquial French demonstrated there. He's still getting out there and working hard. And for Bardet, he's not having to look for consolation prizes. He's still up there at the sharp end of the race. So, yeah, I'd completely agree. You know, chapeau. Now, for those that think we're burying the lead, to, to use a, a journalistic term, you're probably right. So what we want to do now is cross over to a presumably very soggy Ashley House to get his thoughts on today's stage and specifically his thoughts on Alberto Contador. Well, I actually feel slightly guilty today calling up Ashley House in Andorra because uh, it looked a bit biblical. I was expecting frogs and all sorts of weird plagues to fall from the sky. We had golf ball-sized bits of hail and Ashley and Juan Antonio were still out there trying to to get interviews. So, uh, well done, mate. Good effort. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Uh, yeah, it was, it was. I mean, it's been a beautiful day all day until literally the riders approached the bottom of the final climb. So, uh um, I don't think it neutralised the racing too much. We still saw plenty of attacks on, um, within that little GC group, didn't we? I think two things I really want to talk about today, John, because it, it is slightly wet and, um, uh, and so we won't make it too long tonight. But two things I really want to say. Tom Dumoulin, I mean, I mean, you know as well as I do, we, we love him on the show. He's just such a lovely guy. But who knew he could climb before Cumbra del Sol last year? And even after that, who knew he could do what he did today with that group in the breakaway? And then to go away and stay away, it was absolutely phenomenal riding from the Dutchman. Yeah, and the thing that really got me about Tom, besides the fact he is a lovely bloke and the bromance between you and Juan Antonio and him is, is plain for all to see. Um, <laughs> I think what we've seen is further confirmation of him as a class act. You know, he might have been a flash in the pan at the Vuelta last year, but within a year now he's won a stage in all three Grand Tours and you don't do that unless you're a great rider. No, I mean, I've got, to, I've got to say, although we talked about it at the Vuelta, you know, he's showing himself, he, you know, he almost stayed on till the end and he cracked to the last bit. I wasn't 100% convinced, really, that, that he could actually win a Grand Tour, let alone the Tour of France. And certainly when we spoke to him, uh, when we spoke to him at the Vuelta and when we spoke to him other times as well, there, of course, his physique, he's a big guy. You know, can he get up those really hard climbs and so on and, and stay with the best of them? I mean, he really didn't just stay with the best of them today, but he absolutely annihilated them at the end. It was it was great to watch. It really was. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe now we really do start to believe he can do it. Yeah, and at no point was the gap going down. You know, it wasn't a break that went and then suddenly he just held on to it. He was still going away slightly at the very end. So a strong, strong ride. Now, just like Hills, I often think that weather doesn't really get shown properly on the television because the cameras have, you know, light adaptive features which will make really dark conditions be visible to a television audience. Just how grim was it today? 
Uh, well, as I said, it was absolutely beautiful the entire day. And then when it started, it really started. It was really, really horrible. As you said, really big hailstones, uh, lightning, uh, to the point which I was thinking, do I stand here with an umbrella or is it more sensible to get soaked and, and pel- pel- pelted with, with hailstones? I wasn't sure. The thunder was enormous. All the television compound, all the channels, radio channels lost their sound at one point. We did it in the middle of an Oleg Tinkoff interview. And um, yeah, it was really pretty horrible. Really, really nasty. But the joy, but, you know, but the joy on Tom Duman's face was, and, and you saw when he came across the line, he looked back just to check, didn't he? Uh, and then the hunts in the air and his tongue out and, uh, it, it, was, it was phenomenal. It certainly didn't dampen his spirits or, or ours, to be totally honest. I think one other thing to, to, to note, John, as well, is he doesn't, he doesn't just stay with them and go away today. He's such a canny rider. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way in which he went away, the moment in which he went away, and then the way in which he pulled away around those corners as well. Uh, and he knows his strength, I think. He really is a rider who knows his strength. Not unlike Chris Froome knows his strength and his weaknesses. And I'm absolutely sure that Tom knows exactly that as well. And Mark Reef. His director sportif was telling us pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I mean, really impressive ride. Now, we need to talk about Oleg Tinkoff and Alberto Contador before I let you go today. But the other thing which I, I want to touch on, and you can maybe have a think, because we're going to try and have a, a chat tomorrow that we'll put out as a, a separate show on the rest day, is uh, there was a lot of talk on social media, and I had a bit of tongue-in-cheek comment about it, that Richie Port might as well have had a Sky jersey on in the finale today. Um, is there any chatter about that, you know, around the peloton or amongst the DSs, or do you think he was actually just riding for himself and it happened to look like he was riding for Chris? No, I, th- I think he was riding for himself. I think if you watch it back, you'll see a couple of times he, all- he tries to go, he does go a couple of times actually, and Chris just goes back on his wheel. So yeah, he did end up helping Chris, but I definitely don't think that was on, on, on purpose or even subconsciously, actually. Chris is just, a, a, as well, a very clever rider. He saw that Richie was strong today, and when Richie came past at the end, Richie still looked strong. He was, you know, he was chatting away to his mechanic as, as, they, as this one year, rather, as, as they went up to the cars. And he looked very, very strong to me, Richie, for he really did. And him and TJ could, could yet do something here. TJ looked a lot more tired than Richie uh, coming past us at the end. But no, I... I I think it's it's something you can obviously say, but if if you're going to say that, then you need to say that Chris Broom was riding riding for Naira Quintana because Naira Quintana was on his wheel the whole time. I think it. I think it's. I think it's a non-question if I, if I'm honest. To be honest, the reason I asked is that it's easy to get in a bubble on social media, but you actually hear people talking about these things at races. You know, when you're actually on the ground, if it was happening, people would be talking about it. So um, yeah. I, I think, you know, that that's a relatively good vindication of Richie. And finally, let's go on to the, the big story of the day, which is, of course, the abandon of Alberto Contador, who, to pile insult upon injury, had those, you know, crashes in the first two stages and now has, you know, a fever, gastrointestinal distress and all sorts of nonsense. And I was sad to see him go, but I think it was the sensible thing to do. Yeah, I guess it was a sensible thing to do. I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of talk about Alberto's abandonment. Uh, here and when I say that, obviously everybody's talking about it, but there's quite a lot of talk about it, if you like. Uh, you know, he's uh, the big, the big rumor, which is not really a rumor anymore. It's pretty much fact, although it's not official. He's going to be signing a contract with a new team on the rest day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, he looked strong enough at the beginning, didn't he? Oh, he, he had, was, a, he he had a big dig at the start. He had a big dig at the start. He then, you know, he then was climbing pretty well up the first time as well, very strongly actually, and and then he started going back to the car one having a chat, then he carried up, then he went off, then he went back again two times, twice, three times. And to be honest, there were a lot of raised eyebrows around here, a lot of raised eyebrows. And 
I don't know whether he's ill or not. I've, I've got no inside knowledge on that at all. But yeah, okay, if, if he's ill, of course he abandons. He, but how much of it is is in his head? How much of it is he, just, he doesn't really isn't really bothered if he's not going to win? He doesn't need another second place. Let's be honest, or, or even a top ten. Um, you know, I'm not sure, John. To be honest, I, I don't know. But but it, I'd be surprised if he. I'd be really surprised if he really is that ill that he needed to abandon at that stage in the race. I'd, I'd be surprised. But having said that, Albert is a nice guy. I don't want to uh, cast this person. Well, it's good to be said. I mean, when Oleg joined you, he looked pissed in every sense of the word. I mean, he looked angry, but he also looked like he'd been at the Chateau Petrus before he got out of the caravan. Well, to, to be totally honest with you, we were, I was just about to uh, get the commentators to read out the overall standing, uh, and Oleg just literally walked into shot so, uh, and came onto the show. So at that point, my director had to say, oh, OK, we won't go to the standings, let's have Oleg Tinkoff. I don't know at which point during the interview um, it, the sound cut out and we had technical problems because there was a huge fault of lightning. But uh, what I can tell you, three things that he said that were really interesting. The first one was that he said it was actually a relief for him. He said he, uh, it wasn't a surprise to him, it was actually a relief given all the problems that Tinkoff uh, have, have got at the moment. It was a relief to have one fewer thing to think about. That was mm-hmm. the first one. The second thing he said was that Alberto is definitely going to ride Love Welter, which I'm very pleased about because I've already tried to put a few quid on that about three days ago, mm-hmm. that he might win the Welter. And the third thing he said, which, um, which I'm astonished at, is, is a, was the last thing he said to us, which was, don't forget, after all my investment, it's me who's the real victim here. Okay, that's 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 so, a very interesting thing to to chew on overnight, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it just? Isn't it just? Um, yeah, I'm I'm going to let you get undercover because I know that you're sheltered under some kind of godforsaken umbrella somewhere, and we'll chat tomorrow. Uh, where can people find you, Ashley? Right, sorry, I'm going to I'm going to stop you saying goodbye to me just quite yet, John, because there's one other thing we have to talk about the um uh, the penultimate climb. On today's stage, Greg LeMond went over it in a car today and he came to me as soon as he arrived and he said, that's the hardest Tour de France time I've ever seen. And when you saw the riders dropping out the back and the look that Thomas again gave the camera when he pretty much stopped completely, uh, really gave you an inkling of how difficult that climb was. Now listen, Movie Star had two guys in the breakaway. Astana had two guys in the breakaway. Nairo and Valverde were in the group with Chris Broom. If, and that was a really steep, really hard, really narrow climb. If, if that wasn't the time to attack Chris Froome, then please, for God's sake, tell me when is. Because Greg LeMond was screaming at the TV. He's so angry with Movie Star. And, and I could totally understand why. Have they learned nothing from the last few years? Are they going to leave it all until the penultimate day again? I mean, you've got two guys in the breakaway. You've got Naira who's looking comfortable. You've got a really steep section of road. Drop one of them back. Naira goes up. Bridges goes. Bang, bang, bang. You know, this is not complicated tactics. They're not thinking outside the box like we've been wanting them to do, John. But what the hell are they doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually think they have a plan which is based around just what you said, taking time in the last weekend. But I think it's a very risky game to play because there were opportunities there today. Nairo Quintana at no point looked even slightly in difficulty. Uh, and if you look that comfortable sitting in the wheel of Chris' room, you should really be thinking about attacking. I was, I was like Greg. I, I mean, Elsa was watching it with me, and I turned to her, you know, and just said, "This is this is really boring because I was expecting stuff to happen and nothing did." Yeah, nothing did. But I, I do, I agree with you, John, because that that's obviously their game plan. And actually, we heard from Umberto Ensui this morning, who said, uh, "Sorry, who said you Ensui?" Who said, uh, "Who said, oh, we're not going to lose our heads? You know, it's a, it's a three week three week race." And uh, we've got to see the big picture. I agree with all of that. But in that case, 
why send those two up? I, I'm, I'm, it just confuses me. And again, I may be being nice, but it just confuses me. Why send those two up if you're not going to do anything? Unless, I suppose, it's to make guy work because they, they're anticipating what I've said I wish they did. Yeah, I, I think that's what's happening. I think they're letting Sky, you know, essentially shoot all their bolts, get rid of all of the, the, the strength that they have and try and take it out of them at the final weekend. But I think, as I say, I think it's a dangerous game to play. Now, go and get yourself changed, man. You must be standing there shivering and we'll catch up <laughs> tomorrow. All right, thanks ever so much, guys. We'll, uh, we'll see you after the rest day on Eurosport, of course. I'm tweeting Ashley on Twitter and hopefully me and John will have a good chat tomorrow and you can put that out on the rest day too. Really look forward to it. Catch you later, John. Bye-bye. <laughs> Yes, thanks, John. So, really interesting from from Ashley there that the, the feeling round about the the tour itself is that this was a convenient get out for for Alberto because, as I mentioned yesterday, there is this story. It's been an open secret really for for some time now that he would be signing for Trek Segafredo, and that announcement, if you like, is coming on tomorrow's rest day. So it's a bit of a convenient pulling out for Alberto uh, to to go and spend time with his new team rather than having to struggle through the rest of, of the tour. Not to say that his crash injuries were in oh, any no, They way were very, fit, very real, obviously. But, but I mean, the, we the saw fever, blood coming through the dressings and all sorts for days yeah, afterwards. sure. But the fever that suddenly manifested itself today was just potentially a, a way of, of bringing things to a head. Well, we don't know, and Ashley doesn't know. I mean, all he's doing is reporting the gossip that's around the, you know, the, the mad circus that is the tour. Um, you've got to say that um, if if you look at a man with a bad case of the kittles, a fever, um, you know, injuries from crashes in two days, uh, he still had a good dig on the first climb. Now, part of that is, and Greg Lamond mentioned this, part of that is you just want to test your body. You want to see how you're going. Uh, but I think we can safely say that uh, Alberto's love affair with Oleg Tinkov, if it ever existed, is firmly over. Uh, because I thought, you know, Oleg didn't look um, really that surprised that Alberto was away, but raised his eyebrow at the fact that he'd attacked early on. And, you know, he said it was a relief, not because he was relieved Alberto was gone, but because now he could concentrate on uh, Rafa Mika for the, the King of the Mountains and for Peter Sagan for Green. And I think it was very telling that Oleg, who I think actually looked slightly squiffy, um, and as Ashley said in the thing, he wasn't scheduled to be on the show, he just kind of wandered into shot and the director went, action! Um, he he really didn't look that happy. And at the end, the, the most telling thing was when uh, you know he said, well, you know, I'm the victim. I just which don't wasn't, get that at all. No, which wasn't broadcast. Uh, there was a lot of technical problems that all the broadcasters, I presume, had today just because of the weather. So we only got half of that interview. And there was some confusion over whether Oleg, at the start of it, said um, he, he felt it was unnecessary for Alberto to pull out. But I listened to it again. I've actually got the audio from it, which I'll put out as a little sound clip later on on, mm. on Twitter. Um, he actually says that... Um, it wasn't a surprise to him because he's part of the team. So he never said it was unnecessary. He says it wasn't necessarily a surprise to him yeah. that Alberto had, had pulled out. But we never got that part where he said, I'm the victim here. And I mean, I'm scratching my head as I'm sure you are too. And thinking in what way 
is Oleg Tinkoff the victim here? He's what Alberto Contador and and the rest of the you know riders and staff that previously made up Jana Reese's team held them at gunpoint and said, you know, spend twenty million euros or or, or you you know the puppy dog gets it kind of thing. Well, I mean, where's he going with this? Well, I mean, Ashley, um, it's, well, he's wanting to talk to us tomorrow during the rest day because he wants to ponder it overnight. My only thinking is that he's thought I've spent X million euros in Alberto Contador and he's buggered off. Um, you know, and he's been very clear. There was no hesitation at all. And I don't know if he'd had much chance to chat with Alberto where he said, Alberto is riding the Vuelta. Uh, so I think Oleg wants to get his pound of flesh before he, he you know, exits stage left. It was a weird day, though, you know, because, I mean, Contador clearly is a fighter. You know, he's a great racer. You and I love him because he's racing, despite, you know, his background, which he has in common with many, many professionals in the peloton. Uh, but it seemed strange to me that he looked so strong in the first climb in already horrible conditions, you know, they raced the start of that stage very, very fast. And then, you know, he, he was at the very front and then, you know, progressively seemed to fade. So it, it was a bit weird. It was definitely a bit weird, but, you know, it'll play out. We'll see. And we'll see what's announced or leaked tomorrow and whether that has any bearing. But I think the race is the poorer without him. You know, yeah. whatever we think about why he departed, he's added so much to... You know, every Grand Tour he's been in, that it's a sad... I mean, I'm genuinely sad to see him go. I would rather he was in the race up at the sharp end fighting for the GC. And we can say without a doubt that he would have, whether he was fit enough or, or able to take another Tour de France this year, of course, now we will never, ever know. But I think he certainly was fit enough and able enough to affect the outcome of oh, completely yeah. of the the GC of the 2016 Tour de France, and for that reason alone, we are being robbed of of the excitement and the intrigue and the drama and the entertainment that Alberto Contador would have brought to to the race. So yeah, I'm totally with you. Really sad to to see him go because love watching the wee guy climb. Yeah, I mean he's 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 a masterful on a bike. I love seeing him go, and it's sad to see him. But you know the race goes on. Um, we've seen before riders drop out, and you know, on a couple of occasions you'll go. Oh. And I've seen a few folk go, "Oh, that's it. it's done for me. I'm not going to watch now." Uh, but we're still, you know, we've got a thrilling race in prospect in the Alps. We've got some brilliant stages in between with all two. So Alberto will be missed, but you still go if you're a fan of Tinkoff, Peter Sagan, and you know, Mike are going for the the King of the Mountains. So. You know, let's just let's and just also, take a step back and, and move forward and accept that he's gone and just enjoy the race that's left. Yeah, and I would also say that that right, okay, Alberto Contador isn't there anymore, but that then leaves not just a head to head between Nairo Quintana and Chris Froome, although arguably it, it might end up being that way, but there is a, a a hole now which is being filled as we've just talked about with guys like Dan Martin and uh, Adam Yates climbing really, really well and um, Roman Bardi. So there's still a lot of exciting racing, I think, to be had in this race. And, and while I'm sad that, that Contador's not going to be a part of it, I don't think it's going to necessarily leave me with this gaping hole of, oh, the race isn't watch worth watching anymore. Do you know the only thing that will disappoint me, because I've thoroughly enjoyed this tour, I mean, this, we've been doing this show for seven years and I don't think I've had as much fun doing daily shows. My only sense of disappointment will, will be if we get to the, you know, the roll into the Champs-Élysées and we're still waiting for Nairo Quintana to attack. Well, in that case, I will be going to the Champs-Élysées with a big 
slapping hand at the ready for, for Nairo Quintana and I shall take him to task for not having attacked. But we shall see what happens when we get there. Left turn coined. <laughs> so the results of today's stage, uh, Tom Dumoulin takes the win ahead of Rui Costa and Rafael Maika. In fourth place was Daniel Navarra. In fifth, winner Anacona. In sixth, Thibaut Pino. In seventh, George Bennett. Eighth, Diego Rosa. Ninth, Matthias Frank. And in tenth place was Adam Yates. Changes to the general classification after stage 9, but Chris Froome remains in yellow, now 16 seconds ahead of Adam Yates and Dan Martin at 19 seconds in third place. In fourth is Nairo Quintana at 23 seconds, while Joaquim Rodriguez sits in fifth at 37 seconds. In sixth place is Roman Bardi at 44 seconds, along with seventh place Bauka Molima and eighth place Sergio Hanau. In ninth place is Louis Menkes at 55 seconds, and rounding out the top 10 is Alejandro Valverde at 1 minute and 1 second. Now, tomorrow is the first rest day of the 2016 tour, but when the peloton resumes on Tuesday, stage 10 will see them curse the need to immediately climb the first cat Port de Envaleria before setting into a much more horizontal parkour than they've been faced with over the past few days. However, before they reach the finish line in Rivel, after having raced 197 kilometres, there's a leg-sapping third cat climb making a nuisance of itself ahead of the run into the finish. You know, the funny thing is this race has been amazingly good for breakaways. Um, you know, so I, I mean... I think I, that again plays into this conservative wait and see aspect of of the general classification, and I think that that again is been driven by a, a, a parkour which isn't offering up the, the general classification opportunities like we had last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's that's absolutely true. This one, though, although it looks ideally suited for a breakaway. I think we'll probably see a fight for the green jersey because, you know, Peter Sagan was up there today in the breakaway and, you know, that wee bump at the end looks like the kind of thing that could make the difference for him. So a breakaway could go, but I've got an awful feeling that we'll see Sagan or someone of his ilk get over that bump uh, and, you know, be strong enough to take the finish in a a relatively smallish bunch sprint and reveal. I'm I'm with you on that, but before I, I, I talk about it, that climb out of the, the starting gate, that's just sadistic. Ah, it's, I mean, it's two a big, and a half a... thousand metres first cat climb after a rest day. I mean, it's not as if it was like the other day with the tourmalee. It sets you up for the hell that you're going to face for the rest day for the rest of the day. It's just there to be an absolute bastard and no other way of putting it. To be fair, it's really hard to get out of Andorra without going over a first cat climb. <laughs> it's not you building know. tunnels, for goodness' sake, people. <laughs> um, um, I mean, it, it's not a desperate climb, and it's so early in the stage that yeah, you're going to see the the peloton. I think ride relatively piano over it. But you know, you, you could actually, if somebody decides to go hard and form a biggish serious break, you could see it form an awful lot of chase groups as they try to get back into contact after it. But I suspect it'll be pretty neutralised. Mm. I mean, if if a break is going to form, I think it's going to be around there or on on the descent. But they're going to have to yeah. work very very hard to deny guys like Sagan what they want by by the end of the day. And to that point, that. F- 
finish uh, and the, the final third cat is part of a finishing loop around Ravel itself. Uh, to me, with that third cat positioned where it is, you mentioned Peter Sagan, you're absolutely right. What I think and what I would love to see is Sagan, McMatthews and say John Degenkolb if he's feeling up to it, mm-hmm. actually jump clear of the peloton at that point in a kind of mini Milan San Remo and duke it out to, to the finish line. Yeah, I'm not mad at all. And I mean, you've also got people who looked strong so far, like uh, Alexander Christoph, who, who you know, because of their prowess at the likes of San Remo, will be able to handle that wee final climb. So, yeah, I think um, the, the fascination is, of course, the legs after the rest day. You know, mm. you, everybody can have a bad day after the rest day. But I'd be surprised if it isn't a relatively... You know, not a, the whole peloton, but still a bunch sprint from a reduced, uh, reduced group as opposed to a pure breakaway. Well, thank you for joining us today as Big Tam de Milan reminded us why we warmed to him so much at last year's Vuelta a España. Join us after the rest day as we look back at the events of Stage 10 in another edition of the Velocast. <laughs>